93 by Victor Hugo, Part 3, Book 3, The Massacre of St. Bartholomew. The children awoke. The little girl was the first. The awakening of children is like the opening of flowers. A fragrance seems to arise from those fresh souls. Georgette, twenty months old, the youngest of the three, who had still been nursing in May, raised her little head, sat up, looked at her feet, and began to babble. A ray of morning sunshine was on her crib. It would have been difficult to say which was pinker, her foot or the dawn. The two others were still asleep. Men sleep more heavily. Georgette continued to babble, gay and calm. Rene Jean's hair was dark brown. Groelin's was light brown. Georgette's was blonde. These differences of hair color, which correspond to age in childhood, may change later. Rene Jean looked like a little Hercules. He was sleeping on his stomach, with his fists in his eyes. Both of Groelin's legs were hanging out of his little bed. All three children were in rags. The clothes given to them by the Red Bonnet Battalion had been worn to shreds. What they were now wearing would not have been enough to make a shirt. The two boys were almost naked. Georgette was wearing a rag that had once been a skirt, but was now scarcely a blouse. Who had been taking care of those children? No one could have said. No mother. Those savage peasant fighters, who had been dragging them from forest to forest, gave them their share of soup. That was all. The children got along as best they could. They had everyone for a master, and no one for a father. But children's rags are full of light. They were charming. Georgette was babbling. A child babbles what a bird sings. It is the same hymn, an indistinct, stammered, profound hymn. Unlike the bird, the child has a somber human destiny before him. Hence the sadness of the men who listen, mingled with the joy of the child who sings. The most sublime canticle one can hear on this earth is the stammering of the human soul on the lips of a child. This obscure murmur of thoughts that are not yet anything more than instinct contains a kind of unconscious appeal to eternal justice. Perhaps it is a protest on the threshold before entering, a humble and poignant protest. That ignorance smiling at the infinite involves all creation in the fate that will be given to that weak and helpless creature. If misfortune occurs, it will be an abuse of confidence. A child's murmur is more and less than speech. It is not made up of notes, yet it is a song. It is not made up of syllables, yet it is a language. That murmur had its beginning in heaven and will not have its end on earth. It is from before birth, and it goes on. It is a continuation. That stammering is composed of what the child said when he was an angel and of what he will say when he is a man. The cradle has a yesterday, just as the grave has a tomorrow. That tomorrow and that yesterday combine their double unknown in that prattling. 
and nothing proves God, eternity, responsibility, and the duality of destiny like that formidable shadow in that pink soul. Georgette was not saddened by what she was stammering, for her whole beautiful face was a smile. Her mouth was smiling, her eyes were smiling, the dimples in her cheeks were smiling. In that smile there was a mysterious acceptance of the morning. The soul has faith in sunlight. The sky was blue, the air was warm, it was a beautiful day. The frail creature, without knowing or understanding anything, softly wrapped in a reverie that was not thought, felt safe in that nature, in those honest trees, that sincere verdure, that pure and peaceful countryside, those sounds of nests, springs, flies, and leaves, above which shone the immense innocence of the sun. After Georgette, René Jean, the eldest, the big boy, who was four years old, awoke. He stood up, stepped out of his crib with a manly movement, saw his bowl, considered this quite natural, sat down on the floor, and began eating his soup. Georgette's babbling had not awakened Groelin, but at the sound of the spoon in the bowl he rolled over with a start and opened his eyes. Groelin was three years old. He saw his bowl. He had only to reach out for it. He took it, and without leaving his bed, with his bowl on his lap and his spoon in his hand, he followed René Jean's example and began to eat. Georgette did not hear them, and the undulations of her voice seemed to modulate the swaying of a dream. Her wide-open eyes were looking up and were divine. No matter what ceiling a child may have above his head, the sky is reflected in his eyes. When René Jean had finished, he scratched the bottom of the bowl with his spoon, sighed, and said with dignity, I've eaten my soup. This drew Georgette from her reverie. Oop, she said. Seeing that René Jean had eaten, and that Groelin was eating, she took the bowl of soup that was beside her and ate it, not without putting her spoon to her ear much more often than to her mouth. Now and then she renounced civilization and ate with her fingers. After having scraped the bottom of his bowl like his brother, Groelin went to rejoin him and ran behind him. Suddenly the sound of a bugle, a kind of stern and haughty fanfare, was heard from the direction of the forest below. This bugle was answered by a hunting horn at the top of the tower. This time it was the bugle that called, and the horn that replied. The bugle sounded a second time, and was again answered by the horn. Then, from the edge of the forest, a distant but clear voice arose, and distinctly cried out, Bandits, a notification. If you have not surrendered unconditionally by sunset, we will attack. Another voice, which sounded like a roar, replied from the platform of the tower, Attack! The voice below said, A cannon shot will be fired as a last warning half an hour before the assault. And the voice above repeated, Attack! These voices did not reach the children, but the bugle and the horn were louder and carried further. At the first sound of the bugle, Georgette raised her head and stopped eating. At the sound of the horn, she put her spoon down in her bowl. 
At the second sound of the bugle, she began moving the little forefinger of her right hand up and down to mark the cadence of the fanfare, which was prolonged by the second sound of the horn. When the horn and the bugle both fell silent, she remained thoughtful, with her finger uplifted, and said softly, Music. We believe she meant to say music. The two older children, René Jean and Groelin, had not paid attention to the horn and the bugle. They were absorbed by something else. A woodlouse was crossing the library. Groelin saw it and cried out, A bug! René Jean came running up. It bites, said Groelin. Don't hurt it, said René Jean. And they both began watching the passing creature. Meanwhile, Georgette had finished her soup. She looked around for her brothers. René Jean and Groelin were in the embrasure of a window, squatting and solemn above the woodlouse. Their foreheads were touching, and their hair was mingled. They were holding their breath in wonder and looking at the creature, which had stopped and remained motionless, not pleased by all that admiration. Seeing that her brothers were watching something, Georgette wanted to know what it was. It was not easy to reach them, but she set out nevertheless. The way was full of difficulties. There were things on the floor, overturned stools, piles of paper, packing crates that had been broken open and emptied, chests, mounds of various objects which she had to go around, a whole archipelago of reefs. She ventured in among them. She began by getting out of her crib. When this first task had been carried out, she went in among the reefs, wound her way through the straits, pushed a stool aside, crawled between two coffers, went over a bundle of papers, climbing in one direction, rolling in another, gently showing her poor little nakedness, and in this manner she reached what a sailor would call the open sea, that is, a rather wide area of the floor which was not obstructed and had no perils. She then rushed forward on all fours with the speed of a cat, and crossed this space, which was the entire width of the room. When she came near the window, she encountered a serious obstacle. The end of the big ladder, lying along the wall, protruded a little from the corner of the embrasure. This formed between her and her brothers a kind of headland that had to be rounded. She stopped and meditated. When her inner monologue was over, she came to a decision. She resolutely clenched her pink fingers around one of the rungs, which were vertical rather than horizontal, since the ladder was lying on its side. She tried to raise herself to her feet, and fell back. She tried twice more, and failed. Her third attempt was successful. Then, steadying herself on the rungs, she began walking along the ladder. When she came to the end, she reached for a support and found nothing. She stumbled, but, seizing one of the enormous uprights with her little hands, she straightened up, rounded the cape, looked at René Jean and Groelin, and laughed. <laughs> Just then, René Jean, satisfied with the result of his observations of the woodlouse, raised his head and said, It's a female. Georgette's laughter made René Jean laugh, and his laughter made Groelin laugh. 
Georgette rejoined her brothers, and the three of them formed a little group, sitting on the floor. But the woodlouse had disappeared. It had taken advantage of Georgette's laughter to hide in a hole in the floor. Other events followed the woodlouse. First, the swallows passed. Their nests were probably under the eaves. They flew close to the window, a little alarmed by the children, describing great circles in the air and uttering their sweet springtime cries. This made the three children look up, and the woodlouse was forgotten. Georgette pointed her finger at the swallows and cried out, Chickies! Renee-Jean corrected her. They're not chickens. They're birds. Birds, said Georgette. And all three of them looked at the swallows. Then a bee flew in. Nothing is more like a soul than a bee. It goes from flower to flower as a soul goes from star to star and brings back honey as a soul brings back light. This bee made a great noise when it came in. It buzzed loudly and seemed to say, Here I am. I've just seen the roses, and now I've come to see the children. What's happening here? A bee is a housewife, and it scolds in a song. As long as the bee was there, the three children did not take their eyes off it. It explored the whole library, rummaged in the nooks and corners, flew around as though it were at home in a hive, and wandered, winged and melodious, from one bookcase to another, looking at the titles of the books through the glass as though it were a mind. When it had finished its inspection, it left. It's going home, said Renée-Jean. It's a bug, said Groalan. No, it's a fly, said Renée-Jean. Why? said Georgette. Thereupon, Groalan, who had just found a piece of string on the floor with a knot tied in one end, took the other end between his thumb and forefinger and twirled the string over his head, watching it with deep attention. Georgette became a quadruped again and resumed her capricious movements across the floor. She discovered an old moth-eaten armchair, upholstered with tapestry, whose horsehair stuffing was coming out through several holes. She stopped in front of this armchair and began enlarging the holes and calmly pulling out the stuffing. Suddenly, she raised her finger, a signal which meant, Listen. The two brothers turned their heads. A vague, distant noise could be heard from outside. It was probably the attacking camp executing some strategic movement in the forest. Horses were neighing, drums were beating, caissons were rolling, chains were clanking, bugles called and were answered by other bugles. There was a confusion of fierce sounds which, in mingling, became a kind of harmony. The children listened, fascinated. It's God who's doing that. The noise stopped. René-Jean remained thoughtful. How are ideas decomposed and recomposed in those little brains? What is the mysterious stirring of those memories, so murky and still so short? In that sweet, pensive little head, there was a mixture of God, prayers, clasped hands, and a tender smile that had been seen in the past, and now was seen no more. 
and Rene Jean whispered. Mama, Mama, said Groalan. No, said Georgette. And then Rene Jean began jumping up and down. Seeing this, Groalan began jumping also. Groalan repeated all of Rene Jean's movements and gestures. Georgette did so much less. Three years copies four years, but twenty months keeps its independence. Georgette remained sitting, saying a word from time to time. She did not make sentences. She was a thinker. She spoke in apothems. She was monosyllabic. After a time, however, she was influenced by example, and finally began trying to do as her brothers were doing. Those three pairs of little bare feet began dancing, running, and staggering in the dust of the old polished oak floor, beneath the solemn gazes of the marble bus, at which Georgette occasionally cast an uneasy sidelong glance and murmured, Mammons! In her language, a manon was anything that resembled a man and yet was not one. People first appear to children mingled with phantoms. Tottering more than walking, Georgette followed her brothers, although she preferred to move on all fours. Suddenly, Rene Jean, who had gone near a window, raised his head, then lowered it and hid behind the corner formed by the window recess. He had just seen someone looking at him. It was a Republican soldier from the encampment on the plateau. Taking advantage of the truce, and perhaps breaking it a little, he had ventured to the edge of the escarpment of the ravine, from where he could see into the library. Seeing René Jean hide, Groalan hid too. He huddled up beside René Jean, and Georgette hid behind them. They remained there in silence, motionless, and Georgette put her fingers to her lips. A short time later, René Jean risked looking out the window. The soldier was still there. René Jean quickly drew back his head, and the three children no longer dared to breathe. This lasted for a rather long time. Finally, Georgette became bored with her fear, and was bold enough to look. The soldier was gone. They began running and playing again. Although he was an imitator and admirer of René Jean, Groalen had a specialty, finding things. His brother and sister suddenly saw him gambling wildly and pulling a little wagon which he had turned up I know not where. This doll wagon had been there for years in the dust, forgotten, existing on friendly terms with the books of geniuses and the busts of sages. It may have been one of the toys Gauvin had played with when he was a child. Groalen had made his string into a whip and was cracking it. He was very proud of it. Such are inventors. When one cannot discover America, one discovers a little wagon. At least it is something. But he had to share. René Jean wanted to harness himself to the wagon, and Georgette wanted to get into it. She tried to sit down in it. René Jean was the horse. Groalen was the driver. But the driver did not know what to do, so the horse told him. René Jean shouted to Groalen, Say giddy up! Giddy up! repeated Groalen. The wagon turned over. Georgette rolled out. Angels shriek. Georgette shrieked. Ah! 
Then she had a vague impulse to cry. You're too big, Rene Jean said to her. I big, she said, and her bigness consoled her for her fall. The cornice of the entablature below the windows was very wide. The dust that blew up from the heather covered plateau had collected there. The rains had made the dust back into soil. The wind had brought seeds to it, and a blackberry bush had taken advantage of that little bit of soil to grow there. This blackberry bush was of the hardy species called fox blackberry. It was August. The bush was covered with berries, and one branch came in through the window, hanging down nearly to the floor. After having discovered the string and the wagon, Groelan discovered this bush. He went up to it. He picked a blackberry and ate it. I'm hungry, said Rene Jean. And Georgette arrived, galloping on her hands and knees. The three of them pillaged the branch and ate all the berries. They smeared the juice all over their faces and hands, intoxicated with joy. Stained red by the dye from the berries, those three little seraphs became three little fawns, which would have offended Dante and delighted Virgil. They laughed loudly. Occasionally the thorns pricked their fingers. We never get something for nothing. Georgette showed Rene Jean her finger, on which there was a little drop of blood, and said, pointing to the branch, Hurts! <laughs> Groelan, whose finger had also been pricked, looked mistrustfully at the branch and said, It's an animal. No, it's a stick, replied Rene Jean. Sticks are mean, said Groelan. Georgette again felt like crying, but she began laughing. <laughs> Meanwhile, Rene Jean, perhaps jealous of the discoveries made by his younger brother, had conceived a great plan. For some time, while picking blackberries and pricking his fingers, he had been frequently looking at the stand mounted on a pivot and isolated like a monument in the middle of the library. On this stand lay the famous volume, St. Bartholomew. It was truly a magnificent and outstanding folio volume. It had been printed in Cologne by the famous publisher of the Bible of 1682, Blau, or, in Latin, Coesius. It had been made with a box press and cords. It was printed not on Dutch paper, but on that beautiful Arabian paper, so greatly admired by Idrisi, which is made of silk and cotton, and is always white. The binding was of gilded leather, and the clasps were of silver. The fly-leaves were of that parchment which the Paris parchment dealers swore to buy at the Salle Saint-Mathurin, and nowhere else. The volume was full of wood and copper engravings, and maps of many countries. It was prefixed by a protest of the printers, papermakers, and booksellers against the Edict of 1635, which put a tax on leather, beer, animals with cloven hooves, sea fish, and paper. And on the back of the frontispiece could be read a dedication to the Grief, who are in Lyon what the Elsevier are in Amsterdam. From all this there resulted an illustrious volume, almost as rare as the Apostol of Moscow. It was a beautiful book. That was why René Jean looked at it. Too much, perhaps. 
It was open at a big engraving of St. Bartholomew carrying his skin under his arm. This engraving could be seen from below. When all the blackberries had been eaten, René Jean contemplated it with a look of terrible love, and Georgette, whose eyes followed the direction of her brother's, saw the engraving and said, Picture. This word seemed to decide René Jean. Then, to Groalan's great amazement, an extraordinary thing took place. In one corner of the library there was a big oaken chair. René Jean went over to it and dragged it to the stand all by himself. Then, when the chair was touching the stand, he climbed up on it and put both hands on the book. Having reached the summit, he felt a need to be magnificent. He took the picture by the upper corner and carefully tore it out. This tearing of St. Bartholomew was done askew, but that was not René Jean's fault. He left the whole left side of the page in the book, including one eye and a little of the old apocryphal evangelist's halo, and gave Georgette the other half of the saint and all his skin. She received the saint and said, Manon! Me too, cried Groelan. The first tearing of a page is like the first shedding of blood. It makes carnage sure to follow. René Jean turned the page. Behind the saint there was the commentator Pantanus. René Jean awarded Pantanus to Groelan. Meanwhile, Georgette tore her big piece into two little ones, and the two little ones into four, so that history could say that St. Bartholomew, after having been flayed in Armenia, was quartered in Brittany. When the quartering was finished, Georgette held out her hand to René Jean and said, More! After the saint and the commentator came grim portraits of glossators. The first one was Gavantus. René Jean tore him out and put him in Georgette's hand. All of St. Bartholomew's glossators met the same fate. Giving is a form of superiority. René Jean kept nothing for himself. Groalan and Georgette looked at him, and that was enough for him. He contented himself with the admiration of his public. René Jean, inexhaustible and magnanimous, gave Fabrizio Pignatelli to Groalan and Father Stilting to Georgette. He gave Alphonse Tostat to Groalan and Cornelius Alapide to Georgette. Groalan received Henry Hammond, and Georgette received Father Roberti along with the view of the town of Douai, where he was born in 1619. Groalan was given the papermaker's protest, and Georgette obtained the dedication to the grief. There were also maps. René Jean distributed them. He gave Ethiopia to Groalan and Lycaonia to Georgette. Having done this, he threw the book to the floor. It was a frightening moment. With mingled delight and terror, Groalan and Georgette saw René Jean frown, stiffen his legs, clench his fists, and push the massive folio volume off the stand. A majestic book that loses countenance is tragic. The heavy volume, dislodged, hung for an instant, hesitated, tottered, then tumbled down and pitifully flattened itself on the floor, broken, rumpled, and torn, with its binding cracked and its clasps pulled loose. 
Fortunately, it did not fall on the children. They were dumbfounded, not crushed. All adventures of conquerors do not end so well. Like all glories, it made a big noise and a cloud of dust. Having laid the book low, Rene Jean descended from the chair. There was a moment of silence and fear. Victory has its terrors. The three children took one another's hands and stood at a distance, looking at the vast, disabled volume. But after a short reverie, Groalan went up to it with determination and kicked it. That was all that was required. The appetite for destruction is real. Rene Jean kicked the book, then Georgette kicked it, which made her fall down, but in a sitting position. She took advantage of it to throw herself on St. Bartholomew. All prestige vanished. Rene Jean and Groalan rushed forward, and joyous, frenzied, triumphant, merciless, tearing the engravings, ripping the pages, pulling out the bookmarks, scratching the binding, ungluing the gilded leather, drawing out the nails of the silver corners, breaking the parchment, devastating the august text, working with their feet, hands, fingernails, and teeth, pink, laughing, and ferocious. The three angels of prey attacked the defenseless evangelist. They annihilated Armenia, Judea, Benevento, where the saints' relics are preserved, Nathaniel, who may be the same as Bartholomew, Pope Gelasius, who declared the gospel of Bartholomew Nathaniel to be apocryphal, all the drawings and all the maps. They were so deeply absorbed in the inexorable execution of the old book that a mouse ran past without their even noticing it. It was an extermination. To tear apart history, legend, science, miracles, whether true or false, church Latin, superstitions, fanaticisms, and mysteries, and to rend a whole religion from top to bottom, is a task for three giants, and even for three children. Hours passed in this labor, but they finally came to the end of it. Nothing was left of St. Bartholomew. When it was all over, when the last page had been torn out, and the last engraving was on the floor, when there was nothing left of the book except stubs of the text and the pictures in the skeleton of the binding, René Jean stood up, looked at the floor strewn with all those pieces of paper, and clapped his hands. Groalan clapped his hands. Georgette picked up one of the pieces of paper, stood up, leaned against the window which came up to her chin, and began tearing the big page into little pieces. Seeing this, René Jean and Groalan began doing the same thing. They picked up and tore, picked up and tore again, standing by the window like Georgette, and page by page, scattered by those eager little fingers, nearly all the ancient book fluttered away in the wind. Georgette thoughtfully looked at those swarms of little pieces of white paper, dispersed by every breath of air, and said, Butterflies! And the massacre ended with the bits of paper vanishing into the blue sky. Such was the second execution of St. Bartholomew, who had first been martyred in the year A.D. 49. Evening was now approaching. The heat was increasing and sleep was in the air. Georgette's eyes became vague. René Jean went to his crib, 
took from it the sack of straw which he used as a mattress, dragged it over to the window, lay down on it, and said, Let's go to bed. Groalan put his head on René Jean, Georgette put hers on Groalan, and the three wrongdoers went to sleep. Warm air blew in through the open windows. The fragrance of wildflowers, wafted from the ravines and hills, was mingled with the evening breeze. Space was calm and merciful. Everything was radiant. Everything was growing quiet. Everything loved everything. The sun was giving its caress of light to all creation. One could sense that harmony which is given off by the colossal sweetness of things. There was maternity in the infinite. All of creation is a wonder in full bloom, and it completes its immensity by its goodness. It seemed that one could feel someone invisible taking those mysterious precautions which, in the formidable conflicts between men, protect the weak against the strong. At the same time, the whole setting was beautiful. Its splendor equaled its gentleness. The landscape, ineffably drowsy, had that magnificent shimmering appearance which is given to meadows and streams by shifting shadows and light. Smoke was rising toward the clouds like reveries toward visions. Flocks of birds were swirling above the torg. Swallows looked in through the windows and seemed to have come to see if the children were sleeping well. They were gracefully grouped on one another, motionless, half-naked, posed like cupids. They were adorable and pure. Their combined ages were less than nine years. They were dreaming dreams of heaven which were reflected on their lips in vague smiles. God may have been talking in their ears. They were those whom all human languages call the weak and the blessed. They were the venerable innocents. Everything was silent as though the breathing of their sweet chests were the affair of the universe and were being listened to by all of creation. The leaves did not rustle. The grass did not quiver. It seemed that the vast starry world was holding its breath in order not to disturb those three humble angelic sleepers. And nothing could have been more sublime than the immense respect of nature around that littleness. The sun was about to set and was almost touching the horizon. Suddenly, in that deep peace, there was a flash of lightning from the forest, followed by a fierce noise. A cannon had just been fired. Echoes seized upon that noise and turned it into an uproar. The rumbling prolonged from hill to hill was monstrous. It woke Georgette. She raised her head a little, lifted her little finger, and said, Boom! The noise died away, and silence again fell over everything. Georgette put her head on Groalan and went back to sleep.